Well, good morning and um, happy new year. I guess uh, one of the big questions is, do you still have your tree up? I was glad as I came in this morning to see that our tree was up here and the decor. Um, at home, we still do have our tree up, I'm proud to say. Um, against my wife's wishes, she's a kind of January the first sort of person, and um, I couldn't disagree more. Um, in fact, I'm not entirely sure why we take it down at all. I just think it looks great. Um, I don't know whether you find this, but um, we have this situation every year when we take the tree down, and because it looks so bland where the tree was, we decide we need to go and get a new lamp. And uh, the reason why we need a new lamp is because the lamp that we bought last year to go there has now found a new place while the Christmas tree occupied that place. And so we enter into this like never-ending cycle of new lamps, new lamps, new lamps, trying to replace the Christmas tree, which I'm not even sure why we take down in the first place anyway. Um, I think there's some good logic there. Just keep it up. Save the hassle. Well, um, as you look at this new year expanding ahead of you, I wonder how you're feeling. What's coming up this year? What things are you maybe facing? Perhaps there are already things that you know that you can see that feel stressful, that you know are going to be a bit difficult, a bit tricky. Or perhaps uh, there are things that you can see coming up that um, you're excited about, that you're anticipating and looking forward to. And no doubt there'll be things that, um, that we aren't expecting, that we can't foresee. The unforeseen things of life, for good and for bad. Things that can have a big impact on our lives very suddenly. You may have already thought about this, but I'd like us just to take 60 seconds to think about this year ahead. You know how on TV at New Year they have all those um, montages of the previous year, you know, this is everything that happened in 2015, and, and then they have some of those teasers about this is all that's coming up, this is what we've got to look forward to in 2016. And I just wonder, for these next 60 seconds, I'll stop talking and um, just love us to consider what is, what's coming up this year? What are we facing? What excitements does it hold? What challenges? What hopes or fears do we have about it? So I'll just stop for 60 seconds, and let's just think about those things. Minnie Louise Haskins wrote a famous poem. Um, I think it was made famous by the Queen's father, who, um, uh, as king, uh, read it out during the war period. And um, she writes this in her poem. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. 
that shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. And I want to talk this morning about placing our hand in God's hand. I called this talk, um, It's Always Better When We're Together. You know that song by Jack Johnson? It's always better when we're together. Do you know that one? Making banana pancakes. That last bit's a little bit less relevant, but um, anyway, it's always better when we're together. As we head into this new year, as you head into that montage that just went through your head in those 60 seconds, whatever that was, I want to encourage you that walking into that, holding tightly onto God's hand, no matter what lies ahead, is the very best option. Whether for the first time or for the millionth time, grab hold of his hand. It's always better when we're together. The good things are better, the bad things are better, and the unforeseen things in life are all better when we walk into them with him. And so firstly, I just want to talk about the good things. How are the good things better walking through them with God? Um, I don't know about you, but for me, um, often when things feel difficult, I'm more inclined to talk to God and to pray, spend time with him than when things are going well. I remember being at school when I was um, in year 11. I think I, was about, I must have been 16. And um, I was in the playground at lunchtime. And in our, in our playground, there was this little building in the middle. And um, different ones of us would sort of gather around different sides of the building. And, and I was on one side of the building with some of my friends. And I noticed that some, uh, some of the guys from my year were on the other side. And so I thought it would be so funny just to throw a few pebbles over the building, you know, to land on them. Just small little, you know, innocent pebbles. And... Um, and so I did that, and then a few moments later, um, a number of pebbles came sailing back, and so we thought, oh, we'll just send them back over again. And um, I suppose you could say things escalated, and um, the pebbles turned into stones, which turned into rocks, and um, the numbers on either side grew from about three of us on either side to about 25 or 30 of us on either side. And um, the arena of the game grew from over this little building to the entire playground, um, at which point, I decided, this, you know, this has escalated, I decided to head off. And besides, I had my prefect duties to go and get on with. <laughs> and so, uh, so I went to get on with those. And I really didn't think anything of it until later that day, and I was pulled out of a lesson and summoned to the hall with about 50, 60 of us. And, um, and the head teacher uh, came in and, and, and basically sent us home to await our fate. Um, threatening that expulsion was on the cards and, you know, all sorts of threats. Um, and, you know, for me at that point, that would have been a big deal. You know, being expelled would have had big implications for further study and all sorts of things. And so I remember going home and, you know, rarely have I prayed as intensely as I did that night. I mean, I hit the deck uh, and did some serious praying. Um, and the next day we were summoned again into the hall where the head clarified that he couldn't actually expel 50 children from the school, and, um, and so we were pretty relieved, and um, I'm, I was so glad it had escalated <laughs> at that point, um, but we got a warning and letter, on, you know, note on our report or whatever, but, you know, in difficult times, we tend to pray, and that's just a silly example. Many of you will have gone through very serious and very difficult things this last year, and I don't mean to make light of it, but in those times of need and difficulty, many of us will reach out to God 
Sometimes, often, whether we have faith or whether we don't have faith, we'll reach out to God and talk to him in a way that often when things are going well, we just don't do in the same way or can easily neglect. But if that's the main time that we engage with God, when things are difficult, then we really are missing out in a big way. And I think we're actually missing the main point. Jesus came, yes, to save us from things, but he also came to save us for things. He came to save us from things, but he also came to save us for things. What he's offering is more than an emergency helpline, more than you know, the spiritual equivalent of 999 or 111 or NHS Direct. It's good news that he came to save us from things, from our sins, from their consequences, from the brokenness in the world that we see around us, from hurt and pain and the difficulties that we experience. The actual name Jesus actually means God saves. It's wonderful news and it's so important, but it isn't just that. It's not just what he saves us from, but what he saves us for. If you look at what St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, it's in the Bible, in the New Testament. The whole point of Jesus coming, he sums up like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He sums it up in that way. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Or in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Four sins, Christ suffered four sins, so that, in order that, for the purpose of, so that he might bring us to God. God was reconciling us to himself, bringing us back, fixing our relationship with him. Jesus came to bring us back to God. That's what we're saved for. And there's nothing more satisfying than relationship with God. It's actually, according to the Bible, the main thing that we were created for. It's how humans are supposed to be. To be in relationship with God is to be fully human, to be fully alive. You know, often Christianity comes with this stereotype of religion, of rules, you know. Keep the rules, do all these things right, and, and then you'll be okay. You'll make it. As if the main point, as if the main point in all of it was some sort of behavior management or behavior modification. But it's just not true. It's completely missing the point. The main point, the main purpose is knowing God. Jesus came to bring us back to him. And according to the Bible, it means life and it means joy. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it says of God, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. His presence, fullness of joy. In John chapter 10, a well-known verse, Jesus says this, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Another translation says that you might have life and have it to the full. And the commentaries agree. He's not talking just about a future eternal thing, you know, something way off, some eternal life in the future. But he's talking about a present quality of life here and now, life and life to the full here and now, to be enjoyed as we know God and have relationship with him. One commentator writes this, Jesus calls his followers not to a dour, lifeless, miserable existence, 
that squashes human potential, but to a rich, full, joyful life, one overflowing with meaning under the favor of God. The relationship Jesus offers us is life-giving, a fuller life than you'll find anywhere else. A joy incomparable. Um, C.S. Lewis, um, I guess most well-known maybe for writing the Narnia books, um, but he also wrote quite a bit of theology, and um, he writes how one of our problems is that we are too easily pleased, and he writes this, we are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like a child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, he says. I remember um, when Lizzie and I first um, got together, and it was sort of Christmas time, and so we were first going out, and we were at our individual families over Christmas, and um, I love Christmas, you know, I just love it. It's just my favorite time, it's brilliant. I love everything about it. I love spending time with my family, they're my favorite people, I love the food, it's my favorite sort of food. Um, it's just great. Actually, this Christmas, we, um, have you ever done that thing with a gammon, you know, where you, you, put it, you boil it in Coca-Cola, and if you've never done that, you should try it, it's so good. Anyways, um, side point. Um, but I love it, you know. But that first Christmas after meeting Lizzie, um, I found myself present but slightly absent from the fun. We were at our separate families, and I was enjoying it, but I was missing Lizzie, who is now my wife. And, um, and I was aware of how much more I would be enjoying it if she were present, how much fuller it would feel if we were there together. And most of us, I imagine, will be able to think of someone with whom sharing an experience enriches that experience. You know, I find greater joy in watching Paddington Bear with my son Reuben and seeing how he responds, how he laughs, how he engages with it. Um, I find greater joy in that than in just watching it on my own. You'd be glad to. <laughs> just about. <laughs> Sometimes a sneaky solo watch is what you need. Um, whatever it is you're excited about this year, it will be brighter and more colorful if we're walking closely with the Lord. The joy of knowing God, of walking with him, makes good things so much better. It's not just what we say from, it's what we say for. Relationship with God, and it is life-giving and full. And ultimately, he's the source of those things anyway. You know, the Bible says, um, every good and perfect gift comes from him. And you know with kids at Christmas time, when um, they get a present they love, and they're totally absorbed in it, and they're loving it, and you're like, go and say thank you. And they totally forget the giver, and they're just engaged in this present. And you're like, go and say thank you, go and say thank you. It's good to remember the giver. It's good to thank him. All good things come from him, and it's so much better when we enjoy them with him. It's always better when we're together. But not only is the good better when we're with him, but the bad is better also. You know, sometimes you hear um, talks, and it sounds like they're promising, um, come to Jesus, everything's going to be sorted out. You won't have any more problems, you won't have any more difficulties, you won't have any more troubles. And it's just not true. I'm sorry if that's disappointing. 
but it just isn't true. Difficult things are still going to be difficult things. Sad things are still going to be sad things. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're suddenly immune to any of that stuff. You know, for myself, um, a couple of months ago, sadly and suddenly, my dad passed away, and um, he was 65 and pretty healthy, um, no issues, you know, just went for a jog, and, um, and went for a jog in the park and, and, and died, didn't come back. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a shock for all of us, really sad for all of us. We were very close as a family, um, still are very close as a family, um, but it was sad. And Jesus doesn't give us immunity to that sort of thing. The health, wealth, prosperity stuff that we sometimes hear just isn't the case. It's not how the Bible talks about it. In fact, you know, for many people in the world, it's precisely because of coming to Jesus that their year, the year ahead of them gets very much more difficult. You know, with the threat of imprisonment or persecution. In John 16, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Knowing Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that our circumstances will improve. But it does mean that in the difficult things we face, we are not alone. Never, ever alone. He promises to be with us. The Prince of Peace gives us his his peace. The God of hope fills us with his hope. The King of joy floods our hearts with his joy. The hard things we face, the, the hard things that you might be facing when you, when you thought through that montage earlier on, the things that might seem difficult, those things will be easier to handle if God is with you, if your hand is in his. You know, he might intervene supernaturally. He's the God of miracles. Many here will be able to testify of how they've been healed when they've been prayed for, how um, there have been sudden and inexplicable changes in their circumstance where they've prayed about it. He's God. We have his ear. He can and may change things. But even if he doesn't, he's with you. And while others might let us down, he never will. Paul, um, in the Bible, in Romans chapter 8, he writes this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And sometimes we think maybe that means just nice things are going to happen to us then. But actually, Paul wrote that in the middle of persecution, and he actually goes on to be killed for his faith. So whatever he meant needs to be large enough to to contain that. It's not a promise here in that verse. It's not a promise to avoid sad or hard things. It's a promise to carry us through sad and hard things. It's not a promise that we'll avoid sad or hard things. It's a promise to carry us through sad or hard things. When things are hard, remember this. God is always, always, always good. Always good. You know, unlike us, our goodness tends to be transient. My goodness tends to be a little bit related to how tired I am or how hungry I am. Um, You know, maybe I get irritable or frustrated or speak unkindly. My son Ruben, he's two, and um, his goodness is remarkably transient. Um, It comes and goes, you know, dramatically. There are moments, and many of you parents will understand this, where I feel so proud because of some 
you know, really kind or generous thing that he's done. And in those moments, I think, you know, what a good boy. You know, he stands out. And I, and I think to myself, you know, I've always thought parents are the key. Parents are key. No prizes for guessing where you learn that sort of behavior. And, um, and I think to myself, clearly, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And I have all these nice, you know, silent, affirming thoughts going on. But then often, no sooner have I finished thinking those things, that horror strikes, as I realize that that affectionate little hug that he was giving his little, little brother Ezra, who um, we think he loves, um, <laughs> horror as I realize that that little affectionate hug has suddenly and without warning turned into a slap. Um, or horror as I realize that the toy that he now has in his hand is the reason why that other child in the playgroup is crying. And um, at which point I try really hard not to think about the apple and tree metaphor. It's a stupid metaphor anyway. And, uh, and I start to look around for the child who's responsible for teaching him that thing. Um, but our goodness is transient and inconsistent. We have better days, worse days, kinder days, meaner days, tired days, happy days, sadder days, irritable days, grumpy days. But God is always, always good. He's not fickle or transient. He's not, prone to mood, he's not prone to mood swings. You don't have to choose, you know, the right day to bring something up with him. Do you ever do that? You know, when you've got something really important to ask and um, you want a certain answer, and so you're like, oh, I just wonder whether I could talk about, and then, uh, and then they're like, what do you want? And you're like, uh, um, and you know, inside you're sort of thinking, abort, abort. <laughs> this is not the time. Uh, and you're like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, we'll try again another day. But inconsistency like that can make trust difficult. If someone's inconsistent in telling the truth or in handling money or with timing or with attitudes, it can make trust and relationships hard and strained. And in extremes, it can be quite scary. Never knowing what to expect. How will they react? But God is constant, always, always, always good. You can trust him. What better hands to hold as you step into this new year, as you potentially face difficult things. The psalmist writes, an ever, he's an ever-present help in times of need, an ever-present help in trouble. And that, that help may or may not look like you, you, know, you want it to or envisage it looking. You know, help for, for me with my dad didn't mean that he didn't, pass, he didn't pass away. It didn't mean he didn't die. But we did know his help, his comfort. And we knew and know that he's with us. Because it's always better when we're together. Finally, what, what about the unknown? You know, what, much of this year is just unknown. So much that's happened this last year, we never would have imagined this time last year. Internationally, politically, personally, that can leave us feeling anxious uncertain about the future. But perhaps it's comforting to know that if we hold God's hand, we walk into the future, if we hold God's hand as we walk into the future, that we hold the hand of one who is never taken by surprise, who's never caught off guard, who has never and will never utter the words, gosh, I didn't see that coming. Just for a moment, just, like, just listen to what the Bible affirms about God. Um, in Proverbs 16, it says this, The dice is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
in Psalm 139, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. In Proverbs 16, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. In Matthew 10, Jesus says that not even a single sparrow falls to the ground and dies without God knowing. And he, he knows every, the number of hairs on your head. In John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to a woman at the well and he tells her all sorts of things about her life that he couldn't have known. And she goes and says to her friends, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Theologians call this omniscience, that God is all-knowing. There's no limit to his knowledge. Nothing takes him by surprise. But more than that, the Bible also affirms that he's omnipotent, all-powerful, that there's no limit to his power. Again, just listen to these things for a moment. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms a storm with a word. One word he speaks and a storm is stilled. And the disciples, it says, were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Isn't that crazy? Sometimes I think we read that just like, oh, it's, oh yeah, he can't, it's like a little story. But it's, these guys, this is eyewitness accounts of something that occurred. Or um, I love this bit in Job chapter 38. Um, and Job basically is sort of questioning God. He spent a, lot, a bit of time questioning God. And then finally, God responds. And he says this, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea or shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning, Job, since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? I love it. I imagine Job was just like, uh, it's awkward. <laughs> God is powerful. It's all over the Bible. You just can't get away from it. Um, in Genesis, he's the creator and sustainer of all things. With Noah, he floods the world. With Abraham and Sarah, he gives them a son, though they're barren and over 100 years old. With Moses, he parts the Red Sea and frees Israel from slavery. With Joshua, he leads them across the Jordan River on dry land and stops the sun from moving in the sky. With Gideon, he defeats a million men with 300. Old Testament is full of his power. And then when we get to the new, if you look at Jesus, he feeds the 5,000 with nothing. He walks on water. He gives sight to the blind. He casts out demons, commands the sea to be still, and it's still. He heals the sick, turns water into wine, raises the dead, and then himself rises from the dead. Is there any reason to doubt his power? He's never taken by surprise, and there is nothing that is too hard for him. And the reason why I think those two things are so important for us to see, so helpful for us to see, is this. When a politician or a president or a leader is making an announcement about something, maybe something bad that's happened, or a threat or something that's concerning, something that they're worried might happen, the one thing that we do not want to see in their face or hear in their voice is panic. 
if the people who are supposed to be in control are panicking, then they're not in control. But the Bible is so clear. There will never be a time when we look into God's face and see panic or hear its quiver in his voice. Never. We, we may well look and see tears in his eyes, see sadness and pain as he grieves with us over the brokenness in the world, but never panic. He's never taken by surprise. Nothing is too big for him. And so if you walk with him and know that he is with you, then the future, though unknown, need not worry us because of who we walk into it with. The God who knows it and is bigger than it is with us. It's his hand that we hold. I remember an old phrase um, I used to have on a poster in my room. Um, I had such a Christian upbringing. I, I, I just, you know, well, my friends had um, posters of like Star Wars or cars or cool things. I had like Christian slogans <laughs> on my posters. Such a Christian upbringing. Um, don't judge me. But um, anyhow, I th- it's a bit cheesy, but it's true. And it said this, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. So whatever you're facing this year, known or not, good or bad, grab hold of his hand. Our joy is fuller in him. Our sadness softened in him. Our fears calmed in him. Our worries dispelled in him. Our weaknesses stronger in him. And our heavy burdens carried by him. He is more than enough for us. So as we step into this year, you know, this moment at the very beginning um, is such an amazing opportunity to sort of draw a line in the sand. This moment, like at the start of a brand new year, to draw a line in the sand and say, God, I want to know you more this year than I did last year. I want to walk more closely with you this year than I did last year. Whether for the first time or for the millionth time, reach out, take hold of his hand this morning. It doesn't mean that the year won't be difficult. But whatever it will be, it will be better with him. Because it's always better when we're together.